One of the most profound things that was ever shared with me was shared with me when I was a pastor in rural northwestern Oklahoma by a rural western north or northwestern Oklahoma pastor. We were talking about sometimes in church life how you have some people who are contrarians. Nobody here, obviously, nobody would be that way, but Sometimes you have contrarians, and how do you engage them? Here's what he told me. He said, Derek, you can wrestle with a pig. Both of you will get muddy, but only one of you is going to like it. All right? That's, uh, you think about that. That's, that's, that's rural farmer's almanac wisdom right there. You can wrestle with a pig. Both of you get muddy. Only one of you is going to like it. Here's the problem with that, though. We live in a world where it seems like everybody wants to get muddy, don't we? We live in an argumentative, combative world. In fact, it gets worse every single day. So you have to ask, your question, ask yourself a question, how do I avoid getting in an argument? And the second thing is this. We live in, in such a world uh, that is in such decay that is abandoning the truths of the Christian faith, it feels like sometimes to not step into an argument, to not speak up, is being unfaithful. It is to, to make the gospel not worthy of being central to the problems that we speak today. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we, how do we wrestle? How do we engage in conversations with people who are holding views that are contrary to the revealed teachings of Scripture without getting muddy. What are the rules, the terms, for faithful engagement with those with whom we disagree, both inside the church and outside the church? And we're going to find that today. We're going to look at some instruction that Paul gives his young protege, Timothy, about how to engage some people who... Um, were advocating things that were contrary to Scripture in his church, the church that he pastored, and then looking at that specific situation at the end, we're going to come back, we're going to apply it broadly through some principles to, to our individual lives. So that's what we'll be doing today. And it all begins in verse 14. So look at verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, remind them, who's the them? The them are the people in his church. He's speaking in context to Timothy, giving him instruction that he is to pass along to the church that he pastors. Remind them, remind your church, he says, of these things. Now, what are these things? Well, he's just described what these things are in the verses prior to verse 14, that these things are the underpinnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a resurrected Christ living at the right hand of God through whom all people can be saved. Remind your church of the true gospel. That's a paraphrase of the first part of verse 14. And then he says, and charge them, give them a command before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Charge them not to quarrel about words, 
which does no good but only ruins the hearer. So we have to ask ourselves, what is he telling us to avoid? Now clearly he's saying we need to avoid a quarrel about words, but what does that mean? One of the basic principles of studying the Bible is to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so the first question we ask when we see something like that is, does Paul ever use that phrase anywhere else? As a matter of fact, he does. As a matter of fact, he's already used that phrase with Timothy, not in this letter, this personal letter called 2 Timothy, but in his first personal letter to Timothy, not surprisingly called 1 Timothy. You all are brilliant. All right, so let's go back to let's go back to First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six, just a couple of pages over. First Timothy chapter six. Let's look at verse three. Again, he's challenging Timothy at an earlier time. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, okay. So if anyone is teaching a gospel that is contrary to the gospel I've taught to you, a gospel that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel he's given us, and the teaching that I've given you that accords with godliness, Paul says that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved mind and depraved truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So we see that phrase again, quarrel about words, but it is mentioned explicitly in those verses from 1 Timothy in connection with false teaching. False teaching. So, so if we carry that understanding back to to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, he is telling Timothy, I need you to remind your church of the true gospel, and you tell them not to get into arguments with false teachers in your midst. Okay, do you see that? It's very simple, but we need to make sure we grasp it. What he's saying in verse 14 is he's saying, Timothy, you need to tell your church not to wrestle with pigs. And now let's go to verse 15. He gives him personal instruction. He's saying specifically, Timothy, you do this, but he's also expecting this will be passed along to the church. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, every person in Awana just perked up right there. Because this is our children's ministry on Sunday nights. This is the verse for them. Moana means approved workers are not ashamed. And it comes, it comes from right here. But let's ask ourselves, what is it really that Paul is telling Timothy he needs to do? He says again, look at it, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. One approved. What does it mean to be approved? Well, I think something we don't tend to think about in relation to that verse, but I, I think is actually the foundation of it. When he says you need to be one approved, he is saying to him simply, you need to be someone who is, who is, is living a consistently gospel-oriented life. You need to live a life that is a, an accurate reflection of what it is that you claim to believe. This is all about conduct 
When he says you need to be, live a life that is approved, it's speaking about our conduct. How you carry yourself needs to actually give support to and not take away from what you claim to believe. Now, it might strike you um, as odd that he would be saying here, uh, why would your first defense against false teachers be your life, be the kind of life you live? Why, why would he be telling him uh, at the outset, first thing to remember when you're dealing with false teachers, to live a life that is consistent, to live a godly life? I read a a quote in in preparing for this sermon that describes that. It said, the best medicine against the disease of false doctrine is a godly life. That's that's the best way to refute it. Live a life that is consistent with what you claim to believe. Don't be a hypocrite and then be ruthless in your life of ferreting out anything in your life that lends itself to to hypocrisy. So that's the first thing. He says the first challenge, if you're going to really be someone who is dealing effectively with false doctrine, is to live a godly life. But then he says, a worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the second thing is to be a faithful student of the message. Be a faithful follower in your conduct, and then be a faithful student of the message. Make certain, if you want to deal with people who are succumbing to false teaching, that you yourself know what you believe. Be thoroughly familiar with the Word of God. Handle the Word of God correctly. So let's back up. Verse 14, don't wrestle with pigs. Don't get into these debates with people about false doctrines. Instead, you need to, you need to avoid those kinds of things. Next thing he says to them is that you, you need to, to make sure if you're going to deal with false doctrine that you're living out the life that you claim to, to believe, that you're living out the, the implications of your doctrine. Second thing is make sure you're a good, faithful student of the Word. And then he goes on, verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So he's coming back to the idea of false teaching again. Don't get engaged in this. And he says, if you follow these, these false teachings, it will lead to more and more ungodliness. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the connection he is making in verse 16 between what we believe and how we live. If you say that you believe that Jesus is your king, but live in a way that indicates he is not, what you really believe is that someone else is your king besides Jesus, and probably that king looks a lot like you. That's what he's saying. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. There's a direct connection between what we believe really and what we do. And then he goes on to say this in verse 17. And their talk, these people who are spreading these these irreverent things, these irreverent words, their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he calls two of them out. How would you like to have your name show up um, in a letter from Paul like this? He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, Saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. Now we get to the actual content of the false teaching. 
the, the false teaching that was starting to take root and spread like gangrene was the idea that the resurrection had already taken place. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. Is he talking about the resurrection of Jesus? Because we all believe that. We believe that that took place. It's called Easter. You get that. We celebrate that. We all believe that it's taken place. So that's clearly not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that these two are teaching that, that the future resurrection that the Bible speaks to, the, the moment that comes when Christ returns and our bodies are raised from the dead and we're given a body like Christ, he's saying that has already taken place. And obviously we get, well, that's, that's a problem, but I don't really understand why it's a huge problem. There are, there are two things that I think can, can help us see why it's such a big problem. We base our understanding of what will happen at the end of time and how we will spend eternity on the physical resurrection of Jesus. Because he was raised physically, the scriptures teach that is the kind of body, that is the kind of experience that we will have for eternity. We will have an indestructible body. When Christ returns and the curse of sin is finally lifted from everything, we will have an indestructible body. Our lives, our bodies will be like his. So if you say that the resurrection has already taken place, but say that that resurrection is not a physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection, then you're denying the, the first resurrection physically of Christ. You're saying it was only a spiritual resurrection. So you get the doctrinal problems there. You're essentially saying Christ wasn't physically raised from the dead. But here's where the, 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 all the talk of ungodliness comes in. These teachers were then saying to the church that Timothy pastored, because we were all resurrected uh, from our sins at the moment of salvation spiritually, the real us, the indestructible us, is our spirit us, and our fleshly body doesn't matter. So you can do with that thing however you want to treat it. If you decide that you want to go to a temple prostitute, it's no big deal. It's just your body. Jesus didn't need that. He's already resurrected you and given you spirit. If you want to go get hammered drunk at some party, doesn't matter. It's just your body. You're not going to keep that with you anyway. The spiritual you has been resurrected from the dead, and, and that's what's going to live forever. So the idea that the resurrection had already taken place was leading people in Timothy's church to believe that we are just spiritual people, and therefore we can, we can abuse our bodies sin in our bodies any way that we choose. So now we kind of have a broader picture of what's going on. Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got these people in your church who are teaching that Jesus didn't rise physically from the dead, and because he didn't rise physically from the dead, you don't have any implications morally or spiritually on your body. It's just your spirit. Live however you want to. Sin in your body, sin it up. You've got people that are teaching that. And what I'm telling you, Timothy, is you need to tell your people, don't get in arguments with those folks. Don't get in arguments with those folks. And I'm telling you that what you need to do is live a godly life and know what you believe. And that all sounds well and good, but then I think if we think about it very long, 
we're going to have a little bit of problem with it. We're going to begin to think, well, is Paul then saying that we never confront false teaching? That if one of you popped up and began to to teach or believe something that was contrary to the historic faith, the orthodox Christianity, the truth as revealed in Scripture, and began to advocate something that I as a pastor and you as church members are never to address it, we're just to ignore it and live our own life and kind of do us and make sure we know what we believe and leave them alone? Let me tell you something. If that is what Paul is saying, that you just ignore that stuff and do you, it is the only time in the New Testament where Paul is saying that. It is the only time where he is not saying, confront false teaching. I believe that is not at all what he's saying. Part of the reason that I believe that is not at all what he is saying is because he called out two of them by name. He's somebody who is intent on boldly defending the faith. He is absolutely convinced that we need to earnestly contend for truth. However, he is telling Timothy, you don't contend for truth on their terms. You contend for truth on God's terms. And he started to lay out the principles for that for us 2,000 years to follow in these verses. So let me give you three things that we see here about faithfully engaging those with whom we disagree. First, live well. Live well. Our lives as people who, who confess historic Christianity, that that God enfleshed himself in Christ, that he lived a perfect life, died a perfect sacrifice on the cross, paid the, the sin debt that was against all of us because of the fact that we're born sinners, that he was resurrected and lives today. And if we receive him, we have that kind of life. If, if we profess that Jesus Christ is who we profess Jesus Christ to be, then our lives must in word and in action bear his fragrance. We are called to look like him and to think like him and to act like him in everything that we do. And if we do not do that, we shame the gospel and we undermine the power of our belief. One of, one of the greatest statements along these lines that I ever have read was actually penned by a Catholic priest who lived at the end of the 20th century. It's named Brennan Manning. Here's what he said. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. And then he says... That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let me read that again. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
And it is at this point where Baptist preachers like myself are expected to come in and talk about the dangers of worldliness. Right? We can't be worldly. But we hear the word worldly strictly in terms of things that we have all more or less agreed to. That there's a certain code of conduct that we have to carry uh, ourselves by. And that there are certain things that we refrain from from doing. And if we fail to live up to that code of conduct, or if we do those things that we're supposed to refrain from doing, or that we're not supposed to let others see us doing, <laughs> then, then we're being worldly. But let me say something to you. I think the greatest threat, the greatest way that churches like ours have become more worldly is in how hyper-political Christianity has become in the 21st century. We bear no distinct difference in how we are engaging the big subjects of the day than do those who bear no testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, we have decided that not only are we going to wrestle with pigs, we're going to be the biggest pig in the sloop. We have allowed our moral compass to become oriented by our party allegiances and not our theology. When we argue passionately for the right of the unborn but call a precious child an anchor baby or treat someone who is struggling with their sexual identity with utter contempt we make a mockery of our faith. We shame the gospel. We become hypocrites. And the world sees it. That is what the unbelieving world finds unbelievable. That is what they find unbelievable. The, the fact that we can create these compartments in our lives that look like our voter registration card, but don't look like Scripture. That's what they find to be unbelievable. One of the chief ways we can push back on worldliness today is to get some daylight between Jesus and our voter registration card. And if we become people who have no ability at all to criticize our party allegiances, who have, who have no qualms and fully affirming whatever party allegiance we might have, I promise you that you have compromised the gospel in some areas in your life. What, what the world needs for us to do now to refute the, the false teachings about attitudes and actions that exist everywhere in our world is for people who profess Christ to actually live like Jesus did. So, first... I want to push back on this stuff, live well. And I'm sure my email will fire up before the day's over. Next, study well. Got to live well, and you have to study well. We must know what we believe before we can ever begin to take on a false teaching in someone else's life. We, as a matter of fact, by and large, only know Sunday school sound bites 
And so when we try to step into the battle and try to engage people in some of the big cultural topics of the day, it very quickly becomes apparent that we don't know anything about what we profess to believe and we can get turned inside out very quickly. Let's take transgenderism, for example. A few months ago, we had the Critical Issues Forum here at Blue Valley Baptist Church. And the subject was transgenderism, and that was largely well-received. But I did have some positive, constructive criticism on it. As people said, you know what, I really hoped that I would find ways to debate in a way that brings people from transgenderism to my belief and to my understanding of, of, of what Christianity is. You know, I wanted some strategies to do that. And my response to those very constructive criticisms, criticisms was, that wasn't the point of the conference. The point of the conference was on that particular subject to make certain that Christians understand exactly what the Bible says about gender. Because most of our arguments on that particular issue are no more sophisticated than us simply saying, I don't like it. Or it's a sin, but not knowing why it's a sin. We don't know what the Bible actually says about gender. And what happens is people who have never thought anything more about it than some soundbite decide that they're going to engage someone on this subject and they get drawn into a discussion about a word, gender. And they get psychology coming against it and they get sociology coming against it and they have no theology to bring back to the table. And so they begin to be swayed. If we are going to be people... Who are, who are in a positive, constructive way dealing with false teachings in our church and in the world at large, we need to live well. We need to be consistent in the living out of our faith. We need to study well. We need to know what the Bible actually teaches and be thoroughly, thoroughly acquainted with its teachings. And then the third thing is that we must choose well. We must choose well. I um, had a, one of my favorite movies in, in college um, that I watched over and over again was a movie called War Games. How many people have ever seen War Games? Several people have seen War Games. It was, it was back in the early 80s, and it was about a, a, a young man, Matthew Broderick, um, who kind of in the early days of the connected world hacked into a government computer and accidentally set off a countdown to launch nuclear missiles. And the entire plot line of, of the movie is about them trying to stop the computer before it actually launches the missiles. And in this climactic scene, they're all together. I mean, generals and this, this boy, they're all together in this room, and the countdown is on, and we're just minutes away from a nuclear Holocaust, and the person who designed the program gets the computer that's controlling all of this to begin to play itself in tic-tac-toe. And so the computer begins to play itself over and over in tic-tac-toe, and it always ends in a stalemate, stalemate, stalemate. It just begins to go very, very rapidly, hundreds of games a second, thousands of games a second, stalemate, stalemate, stalemate. And then it begins to apply that same principle to the game it thinks it's playing about thermonuclear war. And it says, well, what if this group launches? What happens? The world ends. Well, what if this group launches? And the, it, and, and, and the world ends. And it goes over and over again, and finally it just shuts everything down. Down. The screen goes blank, and the computer begins to talk to its creator. And it said, interesting game, tic-tac-toe. 
The only winning move is not to play. And I think sometimes we need to remember that is the case in the debates that we want to enter to defend the Christian faith. Sometimes the only winning move is not to play. You say, well, that doesn't seem faithful to me. Let's look at the last verse in our passage today. Look at verse 19. Paul, having given this very instruction, live well, study well, says to Timothy, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows whose are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you need to know what you believe and and ask to affirm what you believe or, in the face of a false doctrine, affirm what you believe, say it, and then just trust God to take care of it. God knows whose are his. The Bible and its truth will win without your help. You simply speak the truth and then back up. So here's how this might work practically in our lives. Let's say you're debating or you're at work and, and somebody next to you wants to engage you on a conversation with, uh, about gender and sexual identity. And so they say, what do you believe? You need to be able to turn to that person and having a life that backs up the truthfulness of what you say and a thorough knowledge of God's Word, give an articulate explanation of what the Bible says about gender. And then watch what happens. Does that person think, huh, I've never considered that. Tell me more. If they do that, then continue a conversation with them. But if you speak that truth and they go, ha, well, what about this, 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 and this? You say, we don't, we just disagree and back away. Let God's word heard have its effect in their lives. The Lord will implant that. And bring them to him or they will reject it and they will run from him you don't need to try to win an argument at that point in fact you're doing more to harm the gospel than you are to help the gospel so three things you need to live well and you need to study well and then you need to choose well which one of these things and at what times do I actually get involved in an ongoing dialogue And with all of that, we are affirming truth without getting muddy. And the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will become something that rises up distinctively in your relationships as they begin to see in you, not someone who wants to fight and argue and wrestle all the time, but someone who deeply believes what they believe. And that is what can be persuasive. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.